Welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm here today with my co-host, Nicole France, and we're going to be with some awesome guests. We are on episode number 179, uh, and we've got some wonderful guests. Um, I am Ray Wong, uh, the founder and principal analyst here at Constellation Research, uh, joined with my co-host, uh, Nicole France. Nicole. Thanks, Ray. Well, I am stepping in for the inimitable Vala Afshar. Um, I am also a principal analyst and vice president at Constellation Research focused on all things customer experience, which uh, I managed to find a way to weave into just about everything. So that makes life more fun. We're joined today um, by two fantastic guests, uh, Romy Neustad and Vijay Sundaram. Uh, Romy is up first, and you may have uh, heard of her from either her most recent book, which is um, How You Can Have It All, But Just Not at the Same Time, or her previous book, Get Over Your Damn Self, The No BS Blueprint to Building a Life-Changing Business. Both of these books are the byproduct of uh, Romy's own personal experience, uh, starting out as a lawyer, then a PR executive, and trading it all in to become an entrepreneur. And along the way, becoming a mother to two children and trying to figure out how to be a healthy human being without losing her mind. So thankfully for us, she's on a mission to help other women and other people really to have it all as well. So Romy, thank you very much for joining us. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here to talk about how to have it all. Well, it's a good question, right? Because uh, it's one of those things that like it or not, I think we all, especially those of us who are used to having some sort of high achieving results in our lives, um, sort of feel like we ought to have. But I think the reality feels a lot different than that for most people. So tell us a little bit about how you got to this point of understanding. Well, first off, I think that the concept of having it all has gotten a bad rap. And it's because we're having the wrong conversation. We're confusing having it all with doing it all. And we most certainly can't do it all. I know from personal experience in trying to uh, raise fast-growing kids, build a fast-growing business, nurture a marriage with an aging mom in the mix, trying to nurture myself and do a whole host of extracurricular activities. I have to tell you, I was drowning myself. And like so many other people, it was leaving me stressed and exhausted and feeling like a failure. And really, I wasn't even present in my life. So I had to figure out a way to recalibrate my life so that I could be living the way I really wanted to live while high achieving and while enjoying all the things that were part of my life. Well, yeah. go on, Ray. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's, that's a great point, right? And, and what, what's happening, right, is people play different roles and personas in their life, and you sometimes forget that, right? I mean, you are a wife, a mom of two, right? A entrepreneur, a life coach all at once, um, but, but how do you put that all together, right? You had to take a different approach, and I think that's really what um, people that, you know, in terms of the folks listening here and watching are probably wondering. So what I had to do is finally own up to the fact that my life wasn't working the way it was. And so I went to my husband, John, and I said, honey, I need to run away from home for a couple days because <laughs> I gotta figure this out. Now you might think that he was shocked or said, wait a minute, but he actually had been watching what was going on 
He even had suggested a few things, but we all know, right? Until we're ready to accept that there's a problem and make a change, it's not gonna matter. So he said, baby, you go. So off I went, I gave myself the greatest gift I ever could have, and that was the quiet and solitude of a hotel room for a couple days. Now, just as a little aside, I'm not suggesting that everyone who is watching needs to take themselves to a hotel room. You can even kick everybody out of the house, section off a day for yourself, lock the bathroom door, whatever it takes, but just give yourself that time. Now, it was in this gift of quiet in the hotel room. I was armed with some books and a laptop and a journal, and I just did some digging. I had lost sight of what I really wanted. And it was there that it dawned on me. Not once, not ever, and I was 42 years at the time. This was seven years ago, so I'm 49. Not ever did I stop to think about what my priorities were. Oh, and come on, fact, baked goods. I want baked goods and brownies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but it's kind of hard, right? Because you get caught up in what you think those goals should be. And those aren't uh, necessarily the things that you really feel like you want to have in your life, right? So, so you just said something that is so important. And I was doing the same thing. I said priorities and you said goals. That's the problem. All those years, I had been confusing priorities and goals. I was always a goal setter and a goal slayer. And I thought my goals were my priorities, but they're different things. They're different things. Let me explain. Our priorities are the things that are most important to us in life right now, present tense, that not serving them is non-negotiable. Okay, for example, I've learned over the years, a perennial priority of mine is I make healthy choices every single day because I know if I'm not healthy in body and mind, well, everything else goes to pot, okay? Now, our goals are something different. This is something in the future that's important enough to us to want to invest time, effort, and energy to attain, okay? Priorities are present tense. Goals are something we're working toward. But here's where the important magic comes in. If our goals don't serve our priorities, that's when we feel unfulfilled, scattered, stressed, and like we're spinning our wheels because we are. We're wasting all this time on things that aren't truly important to us. And that's what I had been doing. So once I figured this out, my priorities and the goals that serve them, I had my roadmap of where to spend my time, what to focus on, and what to let go of. And that started the transformation. All right. How do you learn when to say no? Yeah, I was going to say, because part of the problem is having a roadmap is great, but that doesn't necessarily help you deflect all the other things along the way, right? Well, and, and that's just as important. Our stop doing list or the things we say no to are just as important as the things we say yes to, sometimes even more important. So one of the things that I love to teach folks, and I write about this in my new book, is first of all, you have to look at every single thing you're doing in the course of a week and every single thing that goes on your to-do list and you need to categorize it. Is this serving one or more of my priorities and goals? Is this something I absolutely must do because it's something like personal hygiene, right? 
Or, or, and this is where the, you get a lot of your time back and your sanity. Is this something I think I should be doing? And it's the shoulds that don't serve our priorities and goals. I argue that most of us are shoulding all over the place. Those are the things. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt. I like it is. It is. We're gonna add that. Liz Miller and I have a whole set of t-shirts that we're, we've got planned, and that one makes it on the list for sure. All right, let's get let's go into this together, baby. Uh, so so it's it's the shoulds. Anytime you say to yourself, you hear in your head or hear it come out of your mouth, that's a red flag that this is something you should either delegate or delete. Now back to your question, Ray. In terms of how do you say no? It is one of the most powerful, most important words we can say. And folks, especially women, have a really hard time saying it, and here's why. We are so concerned with disappointing other people and being judged. But what I've personally found, and all of the tens of thousands of people I've coached, is when you say no authentically and unapologetically, it's received really well and you feel really great about it. And I say no every single day. I just had to say no to something yesterday and it was received incredibly well. No, I can't serve on your fundraising committee because I simply don't have the bandwidth right now. And you deserve to have someone who can put in the time and attention that this deserves. I know it's gonna be a great success. And thank you really for thinking of me. Now, do you notice I didn't say sorry? No. Okay, and, and I'm on a mission so that everyone says no without sorry because if you are living according to your priorities and goals, if you're living your truth, you are not sorry. <laughs> well, you know, the, the other interesting thing to me about that is that what you're really doing is you're giving yourself clarity, but you're giving all the other people that are interacting with you clarity as well. So I think to some degree, there's nothing worse than either putting off a response because you want to do it, but you know you can't and you don't want, as you say, you don't want to disappoint someone. So that leaves the other party in the lurch as well, right? Either not giving an answer or not giving a clear answer, or as you say, you know, halfway committing, but kind of knowing that you're not really going to be able to do it. And, and ultimately it falls apart and that leaves everybody feeling bad. And it's, it's fascinating to me because hearing you articulate it in that way, just kind of reinforces something I've gotten to in my own life as well, which is there's no more powerful moment than when you say no and you really genuinely mean it. And not in a harsh or antagonistic kind of way, but just that you know exactly where your limits are and you know what your trade-offs are and you're not willing to budge on that. Absolutely. It is such an incredible relief and it's also the right thing to do. So everyone, go to your inbox and go to your voicemails, your text messages, and all those invitations or requests for your time that you're not responding to. All right, let's put on our big girl and big boy panties and just respond and say, no, here's why. Thank you. Mm -hmm. you know, and you also add something really important. There's a reinforcing behavior that you talk about, right? How to build that and build the habitat, build habits around that. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was actually pretty interesting because, for example, I mean, you, 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 know, you raise a good point, right? Maybe you feel like you should be baking brownies or making Rice Krispie treats for your kids for X, Y, and Z all the time for a bake sale or something. Or maybe you feel like you should be responding to a request at, you know, whatever time uh, during the work week for, for a boss, right? Uh, all these things actually come into place, but you got to figure out how, which one's getting it to your goals. Um, so how do you build habits, though? Like, how do you train yourself to build habits? Because I think a lot of folks don't know where to start. Well, first of all, I think a lot of folks have tried different ways of adopting habits in the past, and because they haven't been successful, they label themselves weak or ineffective or failures. And I just want everyone, please give yourself a break, and it's not your fault. A lot of the time, we don't stick to habits because we're not clear on why we actually want to start the habit in the first place. Habits, ah. right? Habits help us solve problems. Mm. Okay, so here's, here's a perfect example. And again, I'm gonna revert to health because everyone, no matter what your profession, you can relate to this. So for years, I was trying to reach this goal of being a certain weight or a certain size. And so what I would try and create habits that would dictate either exercise habits or eating habits, okay? But when I finally figured out what my priorities were around this, around health, it's about being feeling healthy and vibrant. It's not about being a certain number on the scale or on my pant label. It's about being as healthy as I can be. So my goal instead became about eating as many plants as I could every single day. And when I tied that to my true priority, I was emotionally invested and I understood it. And so I was more able to keep to that goal now for years. And the other thing that people have to understand is we are human beings and we are going to fail we are going to stumble and we cannot beat ourselves up. The trick with habits is, okay, you screwed up one day, the next day you gotta get right back on the horse. And then finally, please don't try and adopt 100 million habits at once. I, mean, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't found that superhero costume. Doesn't work. No. Grab a couple at a time. Make sure they are serving your goals that are serving your priorities and be successful with that and then keep going. That's why in my book, I talk about a, a habits lock. And, and so you can track how you're doing. And once you get in the groove with a few habits, then you can keep adding. How do you find, Romy, that that addresses this issue of, you know, these bigger goals that you might have that are sort of longer term objectives with kind of comparing that with where you are today now and what you're able to get your arms around in the near term, you know, because, because I think part of the question of having it all and, and recognizing that you can't have it necessarily at the same time is sort of figuring out what you're happy with, what you're content with in the near term and kind of getting the right balance between that drive to, to keep moving toward those larger goals with having a sense of contentment in the here and now? Well, this is where the power of really figuring out what your priorities right now comes into play. Because when, when you focus on, okay, these are the things that are non-negotiable in my life right mm -hmm. now. 
you're able to set goals that serve them, some of which may be longer term ones, but also shorter term goals in order to serve those priorities. And so while you're getting to the longer term pie in the sky goals, like I was way back when I had really audacious business goals and health goals and wanting to be super present for my loved ones, my kids and my husband. There were things that I was able to do, daily goals that I set or weekly goals, as well as the longer term goals. Now here's where people get overwhelmed, is when they're saying yes to everything, when there's so much on your plate that truly isn't serving your goals, that's when you feel like those longer term goals are so out of reach that you're never gonna get there. But if you make your focus narrower, and if you're truly living your truth instead of trying to please everybody and be some vision of what either others expect or you think you should be, then that's when you get a day-to-day -day existence that's fulfilling, that moves you incrementally forward to those longer term goals. And you have a hell of a lot more fun in the process. And so you've got a process for doing that too, right? Absolutely. So in addition to this figuring out what your priorities and goals are, one of the other things that I make sure everybody I coach does is you have to spend time every single week looking at your week ahead and every single thing that goes on your calendar, personally, professionally, you name it, goes on there and you have to measure it against whether or not it's serving your priorities and goals. And if it's not, guess what? It gets deleted or it gets delegated. And you not only do that once a week, but you also then every night before you shut down because things change during the week, guys, right? The you know what can hit the fan and, and schedules get- <laughs> The shooting hits the fan, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. The shitting, not the shooting. There you yeah. go. So, so you have to, you have to take a look and recalibrate things and juggle things and move things around, but so that you are entirely aware and proactive with what your schedule looks like. And so it's only the stuff you really want to do. And, and for those folks who are watching, who are in a partnership or a marriage, it's really important to have those weekly powwows. We call them traffic meetings in our house um, with each other and make sure you're well aware of what each other is doing, how you both need to work together and juggle and carve out time for each other so that both of you are serving your goals and your priorities. So this is part of what you're talking about, living authenticity, uh, living authentic um, around there. Now, what do you do when, and when it comes to family, right? Because we could all have our individual goals that we're pursuing and then maybe we don't take care of our kids along the way like how do you how do you how do you create that balance because i think a lot of people are struggling with that i struggled with it and and look this is a daily struggle just because i wrote the book on it guys i want to make sure <laughs> understand. i too am a work in progress this is not a one and done thing i'm constantly referring back to all of my tools that i've created and and the mindset tweaks and all of it um it's this is where, and I know I keep going back to it, but that's why it's so important that people take the time to figure out priorities. Because if you've got kids, 
99.9% of the time, if you're digging deep, your kids are going to be one of your priorities. And you can only have two to three priorities at any one time. That in and of itself is pretty good to know. Okay. I've just been cut off. You've been cut off, baby. That's yeah, right. Because you can't do it all. Okay. So, so two to three priorities. So within that, your kids, your family are probably going to be one of them. Okay, so one of my, again, perennial priorities, the words may change a little bit, but it's always around making sure I'm present in the lives of the people I love, which includes John and the kids and my mama. Uh, and so if, if that truly is a priority and you're being meticulous with measuring everything that's coming at you, what you say yes to, what you say no to, according to those priorities and the goals that serve them, you will find the time, but you're gonna have to say no to other things. Wow. So I'm I've scared. got a question. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I've got don't, a question along Don't let that. it scare you. It actually is so freeing and yep. empowering. I can I imagine. Know, I know there's stuff on your schedule, Ray, that just you would, you, you, you're doing so it, it's not serving you. Yep. <laughs> well, I see, so I've got a question on that, uh, Romy, because, you know, I think sometimes um, there may be not shoulds, but they're the things that you feel like you need for yourself. And sometimes there's a question about whether there are genuine needs that help keep you, you know, whole and happy, or whether they're just indulgences. And I'm curious if you've got a way of handling that one, because, you know, sometimes the line is a little bit hard to define. But I would argue why is an indulgent not something that's actually serving you? Why are you judging something? I like okay. that. I like that. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> but do you understand what we do to yeah. ourselves all the time? And especially, I feel so selfish. I feel so and especially selfish. women. But, but, but listen, selfish has the word self in it. Selfish and self-care, I think, are super important. Mm. I, Sometimes I am selfish. I have to put myself first. So for example, is a twice a month massage uh, selfish? No, it's self-care. Is it indulgent? Abso-freaking-lutely. Is it part of keeping me healthy? Absolutely. Yep. So it's serving my priorities. So actually, it is a goal of mine, twice a month, massages. I make it happen. I like it. So I get wow. rounding, rounding this one out here. Sorry, go on, Ray. No, no, I was just, I was just doing a quick programming note for those following. Uh, we're here with Ronnie Newstadt, author of You Can Have It All and Not All at the Same Time, Same Damn Time. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I'm sure I read that right. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, but we're here talking about uh, ways to look at life, life balance, and definitely uh, for lots of folks. I don't know, probably a couple more questions and then uh, we're going to have to unfortunately exit this, but uh, definitely a lot yeah. to learn. I think people should also remember to catch the book. Uh, you can available on Amazon uh, and other places in bookstores. It was released January 14, 2020. Congratulations. So, Thank Nicole. you. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, Romy, it's great that we're, we are on the cusp here with the new material, but I know one of the things that you like to do is, is uh, give yourself a word. A, you know, a really simple way of defining those priorities. And I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you do that, what they've been in the past and, and 
you know, we're still fairly early in 2020. What's your, what's your word for the year? So this one word concept was the very first thing I stumbled upon back in that hotel room seven years ago. And this was long before it was a thing, right? No <laughs> cute little washer bracelets. They were talking about it on the Today Show, but it really resonated with me to have this mantra, kind of a battle cry of what the year would stand for. And way back then, may not be a surprise to you after hearing what I was going through, my word was balance. Okay. Now it was from there, I, I knew that one word alone wasn't gonna magically transform my life. <laughs> but it was a kickstart from where I figured out, okay, well, this whole priority thing, mind blown, and then create goals. And so I wrap it up into this whole one word process because the one word is the gimmicky, easy thing that will get somebody to start doing this work but it's the rest of it, the priorities and the goal setting that actually get people to transform their lives. Now this year, my word is focus because with business still growing like crazy and we're expanding into another country, we're going into Japan and with the book coming out and all the interviews and speaking I'm doing, I knew that I had to practice what I preach and stay completely focused on what's really important to me because the stuff that's coming at me, guys, it's getting exponentially big, which is why wow. I'm saying no a hell of a lot more than I say yes. Well, as you enter Japan, you're the Marie Kondo for life. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are here with Ronnie. Romy. Romy, Romy Neustadt. And, mm -hmm. uh, Thank you so much for being on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at R-O-M-I-N-U-S-T-A-D-T. And, uh, you know, we'll catch her, catch her book. And, of course, uh, please come back on sometime. So. Thank you Romy, so much. Thank I you. love it. Thank Here's you, Romy. You're all, both of you. Wow. That's uh, very powerful. Uh, I probably could learn a few things there. <laughs> <laughs> no comment, no comment. No, we all could. I, I mean, and that's, that's the really interesting thing. I mean, you know, so much of life is about making trade-offs. And it's really hard to make trade-offs if you aren't clear on what you're trying to move toward ultimately, right? So it makes a whole lot of sense. I'm just not good at saying no, but our next <laughs> guest is good at saying yes. So uh, he's one of the folks that are most interesting, uh, doing some very interesting work. Uh, Nicole, I'll let you do the introductions. Absolutely. Well, and I think I think focus is probably a really great segue to introducing Vijay Sundram, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Zoho. Um, so I know Vijay, you're also responsible for partner and channel programs, and this is not your first rodeo when it comes to being an entrepreneur or being at the early stages of founding a company, not that Zoho is anymore, um, but you've done all kinds of things in your professional life. You've led products, sales, business development, finance teams, and I know from firsthand experience that you are extremely interested in kind of the brainstorming and troubleshooting of complex business challenges, especially when they cut across different functional and, and organizational borders. So Vijay, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. That's, that's a, a flattering introduction. I should take that back down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not a bit of it, not a bit of it. <laughs> well, well, hey, welcome, welcome to the show. And, and I think you, um, you're, you're in a great position to figure out what's happening in the marketplace. And one of the things that we're seeing is not enough cool startups a lot of money chasing after M&As and crazy valuations. 
So what's going on here with this kind of like weird industry consolidation? We're going through another wave. Um, and what are you seeing? You know, it's uh, sometimes it's interesting to go back and understand the problem from, from a grassroots, right? So what's going on here? What people call original cause or, or the core of it. I think it all, it all comes down to some sort of what's happening at economic policies across the world over the last 10 years. You know, so that's where it all starts. That's the root cause of this whole thing. So if you look at the largest economies in the world, the US, Japan, China, Europe, you know, accounting for most of the world's economy, you've seen a huge ease in monetary policy. You've seen a lot of free money into the system, quantitative easing, right? Uh, my kid knows what quantitative easing is. <laughs> You're a very smart kid. So, okay. <laughs> I just drill it into the heads. But uh, that's, that's what's going on, right? You've got all this uh, capital, ridiculously low interest rates, right? For extended periods of time. So all of a sudden, there's a lot of money chasing ideas, chasing things, right? People are looking for that extra return, that extra yield, as they call it, right? So that's a root cause. So where that... That's the macro. Then where it flows into the micro is now you have stock market valuations that are shooting up. You know, we have the highest valuations ever, of uh, ever, you know? And then you've got now two things going on, free cash and the ability to have your stock as overinflated stock as cash equivalent. Now you put those two things together, you have a formula sometimes for disaster, a lot of times for disaster, but you have a formula for this, activity that you're talking about. People want to go and, and M&A has become the way to grow and the way to innovate. And you've got the cash to do it and you've got the policies of the last 10 years that have helped you do it. So I think that's what's going on. But isn't it crazy? Like we've got risk hedges that are up, right? We've got growth hedges that are up. Like we've got, everything is up and yet there's no inflation. Like, is this just bizarre? Are we just in a weird period of time? You know, this, there are economists writing about this, right? And people are re-examining uh, re whether, you know, even the, you know, you've talked about the Laffer curve and all these thing, economic concepts that people are re-engaging. Re Should inflation really be going up? Uh, uh, why isn't it going up when, when everything else is going up? So I, I think, you know, there's a lot of contrarian economic theories out too. There's, uh, 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 so the, the core of it when it comes down at the micro level is, I think people look at it and say, we've got the cash now, we've got the money now, let's do the deals now, because we don't know how long this will last. Mm. We only see this until we see the next downturn, right? Then it all comes and resets back again, and we forget the state of euphoria that was all there, and all the pockets start to tighten all over again. Well, you know, it's interesting, Vijay, because we have this at the same time, you know, there's a view that if you look at startups and investment in startups, that companies are going much, much longer on private investment before they IPO as well. So there's kind of an interesting pattern here that suggests that, um, you know, we're almost like skipping over the earlier stages of companies going public at a, a smaller size. And there's an interesting dynamic there too, both from an investment standpoint and also potentially from an M&A standpoint as well. It makes the targets much, much larger for one thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's, there's a, uh, uh, you, you know, you have the largest funds in the world. Look at what uh, SoftBank has, right? $100 billion fund. Have you ever heard of anything like that? And they got a second one. <laughs> they got a second one. So when you have money like that, what's happening is building these poor practices, in my opinion. 
So mm. you've got valuations in the private, in pri uh, private valuations that can never be matched under public scrutiny. And therefore you've got these people raising millions and hundreds of millions of dollars and they keep boosting it up. And the whole idea was if I get out with a private evaluation, I, I'm setting a floor when I go public. And we've seen how that hasn't held up. Yep. We've seen how that has fallen apart, right? So now we're going to have a reset of this whole story. So companies had an incentive to do these private valuations and all these, you know, even things like private placements, pipe deals, all kinds of stuff have come out because people realize the private market gives them that less scrutiny. That's going to fall out because ultimately, at some point, you know, the uh, you have to you have to pay the piper. Yeah, no, we have that with the secondary market, the uh, Jobs Act. It's also do, creating those types of uh, distortions in the market. But what does it mean for startups? Right? Is is, is innovation dead? Do we still get to innovate? Uh, do startup cultures have a role? You know, uh, it's interesting to see how this how M and A plays into innovation. Right? So does it does it help innovation? And, and you know, your, your natural logic is that it should because it promotes, uh, you know, it promotes multiple ideas and it allows people with good ideas to find a way to get their returns from it, justifiably so, right? So all of that is still true. That fundamental dynamic cannot be wrong. But what's going on is you have to look at the innovation or the, from whose perspective, right? Who is it good for? So you have the acquirer, you have the acquired company, you have the ultimate user of the product, and you have the larger economy, right? So if you look at the acquirer or the acquiree, they're dynamic. For the, acquire, for the acquiree, it's good because they've got an idea, sometimes not necessarily an idea that's going to pay off, and most acquisitions, as you know, don't work. So a lot of times those ideas don't pay off. From a perspective of an acquirer, it allows them to post their growth and show their returns and show the acquiring new ideas. It makes sense for them too. Now, think of the person like you and me, the customers of the products. So what does it mean for us? Does this drive innovation? You know, but we, in have, but yeah. we, have, we have a class of startups that are basically building for acquisition today. Right? They're building a feature that someone else doesn't have so that they hope they can get acquired. They don't have any hopes for actually going public on their own for just that feature. But we've gotten down from like, you know, whole suites to product families to a feature, right? And creating a role around a feature. <laughs> I'm like, you know, some of these things, I'm just like, really? Like, that's, these are just a collection of features, but they're getting valuations of product companies. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, you, you've seen those charts right, of 5,000 companies just in the marketing technology. <laughs> it's over that now. It's over 7,000. <laughs> you're a few years out of date, Vijay. But no, I mean, I find it fascinating because on one hand, I think there there is to the point about the behaviors that are being reinforced here. And, and to your point, Ray, I mean, we are absolutely seeing founders whose initial plans are the exit, right? I mean, and that's and the exit is typically defined as acquisition. Yeah. But the other thing that I find an interesting sort of um, corollary to this is that at the same time, I think there is, in fact, a need for focus on, let's call it features, because mm -hmm. one of the things that is very clearly the case, certainly in the technology market and the business software market, is that it's actually incredibly difficult to design and build software that really effectively serves a well-defined purpose, right? And, and I think this is one of the really big dynamics we see going on in the market today because there's a lot of stuff out there that are you know, generic and fantastically powerful technology tools, but they still require a very significant degree of vision or imagination and even to some degree technical ability or at least 
sort of design thinking, if you will, kind of structured um, developer-like thinking to actually make those tools do what you want them to do in a business context. So I would argue that a lot of the more successful, let's call them feature companies that are out there, are actually doing a really good job of applying some of these bigger capabilities to really specific goals and doing that well. And that does have value for sure. But, you know, again, it, how much of it is standalone and what then do you do? Is it up to the market to put these pieces together? Is it up to customers to put them together? The answer is probably somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great point. I mean, I, I, I agree with the, with, with the concept that, you know, you have, startups and innovators that pick on a particular area, they can focus on that more tightly and bring in some new innovation. Like you've seen that in the automobile industry in, as, as it moves towards you know, self-driving cars and so on. People pay, take pockets of technology, whether it's batteries or whatever it is, and go deep into it. I think uh, inherent to your comment was you, you could bring in the notion of short-termism and long-termism. You know? yeah, and yes. building a company to be to, to, with the focus of getting acquired, then it, now look at it from a macro perspective, not from a view of that company, from a view of what happens over a period of time for an economy. So it, it, it sets into motion the kind of innovation that looks for exits or outcomes in a few years, right? So we know that certain innovations take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Think of the Japanese in the 70s and the 80s and what they were doing and, and still are doing. Mm. They just don't credit, get credit for it anymore. But uh, uh, this, they have work on ideas that take 15 years, 20 years. So endemic to this method of massive cash infusion, M&As, quick focus on something tight and something small and do it. The flip side of that is you don't get these large ideas that require incubations, that require larger patient capital, patient innovation, and, and a long-term approach. So yeah, what's the no, alternative? <laughs> what's the alternative, Vijay? How do you get there with the longer term stuff? So I, I think you will find that with individual companies, right? You find that with companies that take on that stance. Certain, you will see there are companies that build for the long term. There are companies that take on innovation that we want to, we, we they will invest without seeing an immediate outcome in four or five years, right? So some ways that does you, so you, one way to ask your question is, is does the public market reward that and if you look again that depends on the window if you look at a mm -hmm. five or ten year window maybe not but if you look at a 20 think of apple if you look at a 30 40 year, year old window yes it rewards that and if you're a private company your rewards are in other places your rewards are in acquiring customers retaining them building a book of business that lasts a period of time Hey, let's switch topics. Something you guys are very passionate about, something we like as well. Um, let's talk about privacy um, and, and what's really going on. We've got you know, rules like, uh, I don't know, uh, GDPR that tells you what you can't do. We got rules like CCPA, which kind of tell you what you can do. And then we've got like uh, different sets of ethical uh, and moral based kinds of rules that people are looking at. Uh, what are you guys doing about this? You know, as, as a company ourselves, this is one of the things that we try and hold ourselves to a higher standard than what others would require us to do. And maybe that stems from a notion of, of, uh, to, of parsing the words right. Do you do something that's legally acceptable or do you want to do something that's morally acceptable? You know, we've talked about this concept. We've sort of worked on this for a long period of time. And so that comes back to, if you take on the stance of, 
I want to do something I want to do to my customers and my ecosystem and treat them in ways that I want to be treated, then that takes, that takes a different mindset, right? So you start to take on things in the area of privacy that are not mandated by law, but is just the right thing to do. And if you see what's going on today, there's the, the biggest companies are the biggest perpetrators of this, right? This week, there was an article in, 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 in the Wall Street Journal, I don't know if you, you probably saw that, you know, which talked about what actually set off the government uh, uh, privacy, stringency on privacy against specifically a couple of companies, Google and Amazon. It turns out oh, yeah. it was actually this person noted their experience of getting in, buying a brand new phone, uh, putting it on airplane mode, turning off Wi-Fi and putting it in their car and went on a weekend trip. So he comes back at the end of the weekend trip, ties his machine and uh, connects his machine to the internet. And the machine has logged every place the person has been to, every destination, including altitude, you know, and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And it has sent a, a dossier to Google, you know. So how did we, and, and it turns out that this person is actually a lobbyist for Oracle, right? So there is a... <laughs> So there might have been a vested interest there. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you know, he's been like, he's been in K Street for a while. I've known him for a while. I mean, he's he's kind of like the guy that shows up and things happen. <laughs> there you go. So uh, Ken, yeah, Ken, you were talking about Ken Gluck. He was in the Wall Street Journal on the front page, right? It's very interesting. Like you know, this Amazon deal, right? Is it's getting scuttled by you know someone that's telling all these legislators that oh no, this is bad. You you want multiple contracts? He's got a point. He's got a point, right? Like yeah. a deal this size, you might want to spread out the workloads and, and create it so it's even for everybody. Or what people haven't said was there are like 10 more deals this size coming down the pike, exactly. right? Which, which, hasn't been, which hasn't been said, right? So, so if you don't know what's really going on, you're like, oh yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. It's pretty fair. If you do know what's going on, you're like, oh, that was pretty smart, right? From a, yes. from a strategy point of view. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a technology company, you know, you're forced to think, how did, how did we let this happen? When did this happen? You know, where all of a sudden you could be surveilled in such, it's so brutally to, for mm. lack of a better term, you know? And, and we just let it happen. Are we in, a, in, a, in an era now where big tech is simply going to make it unlivable for all tech, you know? So when, when does this thing, how does it stop? So somebody has to take a stance, right? So you try and do that as an individual company. You try and do that as, okay, I'm not going to do this. Uh, you know, we are going to build our systems that won't allow this or we are not going to allow third-party snoopers on any of our properties. So you've maybe there's, you know, I think this whole thing will turn around. You know, people will start to see that they need to own. Why is it so difficult for a company to come out there and tell their customer, you own your data? Or you can at least track what data I have of yours, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and what I might be doing with it commercially. That, that's yeah, the toughest time for companies to say, this is your data and you own it, you know? So... It's, I think this will turn around as, and you know, we, some companies will be compelled to do it by the law. Some others will do it because of their customers, yet others will do it because it's the right thing to do. You know, it's interesting because I, I think there's, to me, a fascinating question here, which is about, uh, and it goes back a little bit to the wash of cash that's around for startups too. Uh, I think you can be spoiled by too much too many resources, too much data, right? And it's the fascinating question for me from a context of customer experience is, I feel like what we're always really trying to do is to understand how you have the maximum positive impact for the minimum 
touch or invasiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Let's call it the minimum touch, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I think that applies equally to how you actually engage and interact with customers, but also very much to how you think about customer data. And I, what's, what's interesting to me is it seems like um, there's so much data swimming around and, and certainly some companies that are really developing a reputation for being part of this surveillance economy um, are just swimming in it. And it, in a sense, makes you really lazy because you don't have to think critically about what you really need to know in order to understand what the right prompt is in that moment with that customer or over time, right? Because you've just got all this stuff. And, and the problem becomes how do you process it all as opposed to how do you think critically and make sure you're number one, asking the right questions to solve the right problems. And number two, getting as efficiently as possible to the answer without necessarily getting more than you need to do that. Right, right, right. No, no, to totally right, totally right. I think what, one way to look at this is, is the business structured with the right incentives? You know, so let's say a business, you're in the business of ads. If you're in the business of ads, uh, it is fundamentally at loggerheads with, with privacy. How could you not, how could you square that? How could you actually square that? It, it, is, you, it, it helps you to get more information. More information puts people into actionable, marketable segments and everything that advertisers will pay for. Similarly, if, so if any Technolo technological in initiative you take now is has to be seen in that context because you're getting information in this side of your business is going to help you promote the other side of the business. So I think fundamentally it is how the business is structured, how the incentives are aligned. And if you right. don't have conflicting incentives upfront and your customers and, and your ecosystem sees that you can keep your nose clean. Otherwise, well, you know, Sorry to interrupt you, Ray, but there's a great, great question that just came in on this one from Zachary Jeans, which is, well, what is the role of the B Corp then in this? Because for that corporate structure, we're talking explicitly about a definition of stakeholders that includes the community, that includes customers more specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was talking about the core, even how a business structures its own, its own activities and businesses. Yeah. Uh, I think it also it also comes to it comes down to who are the communities you're serving is if this is primarily if you if you have a business that's fundamentally built on a, a very high margin model that is built on on advertising a lot of such businesses today and then you go on to the public cloud or you go and do some other strategy you're always going to be uh, suspect what are you doing with that data because you do have, and you can say anything about uh, building Chinese walls, but it's the same business. You're answering to the same single public market. Well, Vijay, you guys did something really unique uh, in terms of that conversation. What did you guys ban on your um, system? Yeah, it's, uh, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but yeah, you made a concerted effort to take a stand there, and I think it's, I think people should know about that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, Zoho has always been a company that has, but you know, we've always talked of if you want to put privacy first, this is the company you talk to. Uh, we've never had an ad model from the very beginning. We never had all these gimmicks where you get free products where we're actually monitoring your data. You know that the whole notion of of, uh, uh, of free products which collect your data is is for us a non-starter from the beginning. And what we've we've taken that philosophy and, and as we evolve as a company, we keep pushing it further and further, especially as we see what's happening in the marketplace. So one of the things we've done now is we don't allow any third party uh, surveillance type companies 
like uh, anybody who, on any of our websites. So you could, so if you, you can go to any of our, our Zoho platforms and you don't have anybody, any third party looking for information or slipping for information. And you will almost not find that at all in the technology industry. And this is, this is easy to find out because there are tools that can look at websites and tell you who's sniffing and snooping at data. This is massively unheard of, but we are here with yeah. Vijay Sundaram, Chief Strategy Officer at Zoho Corporation. And you can follow him on Twitter at VJSUNDARAM. Thank you so much for being on the show. And then I'll hopefully see you next week, which we'll talk yeah, a little bit more about with it. Nicole. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Nicole. Yep. This is wonderful. Thanks, Vijay. Nice seeing you. Take care. Wow. Okay. So we've gone from managing ourselves to getting some awesome levels of understanding of what we prioritize, being our authentic self, to anything from privacy to what's happening in the Valley on M&A. Now you're in the spotlight, Nicole. Oh, <laughs> so, no, no, not me. <laughs> so you are in the spotlight. Thank you for guest hosting. Um, as everyone knows, Nicole is looking at all things CX for Constellation um, with a very, very broad view. So just a few questions, but, you know, Nicole's our VP and Principal Alice, um, and you can follow her on Twitter at LN France, L and N as in Nicole, F-R-A-N-C-E. So a couple of things, right? You're working some big research projects. You just finished a CPQ, or you're in the middle of a CPQ, market overview and offering overview, and it plays a huge role in CX. Tell me, tell me why that is so important. You know, for me, and it was a really, uh, it was an interesting process, I have to say, because I knew about CPQ, I kind of looked at it fairly superficially, and in doing the market overview, I really got kind of knee deep in the, the whole subject. And for me, what's really fascinating about CPQ is you can look at it at a high level as a, you know, a product and pricing configurator. But really the thing, the role I think it plays that's fascinating and actually really valuable for companies is in kind of bringing together what the buying experience is for customers and closing the gap with what the selling experience is for sellers. And the reason it does that is because it's really shortening the feedback loop for one thing. It's making the whole process a lot faster because you can automate key steps of it. You are ensuring a degree of consistency around you know, information, whether it's around product and configuration options or what the pricing impacts are gonna be, or you know, depending on the type of offering, even what the availability is, because oftentimes for physical products, this stuff is tied back into uh, supply chain and ERP systems. So you can determine when something can actually be delivered, which is a huge thing for customers and for sellers too, by the way, who are trying to meet the expectations of their customers. Um, but it's also creating a degree of transparency. So from an individual deal level, I think sellers have a much clearer idea of what they can actually promise and deliver to customers at what price, which is huge. I think sometimes customers even uh, where these configurators are used online can come into a salesperson with a pretty good view of what they want already. So there's, there's a tremendous kind of acceleration, if you like, um, to go from concept to actually signing a deal and, and having the thing paid for and delivered. But what's, what's also really cool about it is that the company has this set of data and insights that you really wouldn't have otherwise that becomes tremendously valuable. So you in direct there saying a couple of things like CPQ is playing a role in orchestrating an experience. Absolutely. But you're also saying that the way you interface with CPQ is also impacting the perception of the brand. 
Is yep. it simple? Is it not simple? Do you have something available? Do you have a policy that ties back to me? It's kind of interesting. Most people wouldn't look at CPQ that way. No. And in fact, what's been interesting is talking to the companies that are actually implementing it or who have implemented it. In some cases, companies that did something a long time ago and then have come back and, and replaced it with a, a newer system. Um, and the companies that really see this as a foundation or a cornerstone of a bigger transformation effort. And that's the bit for me that becomes really, really fascinating. And part of the reason is that once you begin to see how this ties into different parts of the organization, you really see a couple of things. I talked about transparency and data, right? Um, feedback loops, um, but also uh, the kind of interrelated behaviors as well. So CPQ, yes, it absolutely touches on product teams. It touches on marketing teams. Um, you know, for a lot of companies, part of the challenge is how do you take this new product that you've developed and make sure that you can get it to market really quickly? And that means you've got to have all this information available. Marketing has to bless it. Product has to bless it. And the salespeople have to understand what the hell it is they're actually selling and what all the details are related to that that they need to convey to customers. So there's a huge amount of um, information sharing kind of contributing to it, but also uh, ensuring that everybody has a reference point that's consistent. The other thing that I think is really fascinating is you come to some basic management principles, right? Like, I don't know, profitability. And one of the things that I, certainly in my experience has tended to be the case is that profitability analysis is a rear view mirror exercise, right? You look at it after the fact, you maybe do it quarterly, maybe, maybe monthly if your if your information is good enough, but you're really going back and doing an ex post facto review. What's kind of cool about CPQ is that if you've implemented it uh, with this goal or objective in mind, individual salespeople understand impact on um, profitability of a given configuration or deal. Sometimes their compensation might be tied to that and they can even see what the impact of that is in real time, but also management can see, you know, um, whether it's sales directors or even higher level execs can take a look and really see what the impact is going to be in the short term of deals that are in the pipeline right now. So that's, that's the huge thing. Right. And, and that's a very interesting way to get the sensitivity analysis and pricing, right? Trying to understand demand oh, yeah. signals, trying to figure out how to like, back up on supply chains that, that people wouldn't have normally think, thought about. So, yeah. all right. But switching gears, you've got panels. You've got people showing up at the Ambient Experience Summit. We're hosting that uh, yeah. in Atlanta on the 26th and 27th of February at the Porsche headquarters. Uh, talk a little bit about your panels and what you're looking forward to. Uh, we're, we've got some good stuff coming up. Um, and I, I've got to say, I think um, we are really spoiled for choice when it comes to the folks that we have involved, not just as attendees and panelists, but, you know, Ray, you, I, and Liz all have um, really big hands in defining the agenda and making it happen, but we're joined also by the illustrious uh, Paul Greenberg and uh, Brent Leary as well. So we've got really a kind of all-star set of folks looking at all things experience and, and customer experience particularly. Um, I've got a couple of panels I'm, I'm really looking forward to. So one is on uh, this idea of a team of rivals, right? So in customer experience, we have this challenge in big companies especially, which is we've got these big departmental silos that often get in the way of building consistently good customer experiences. So we've got marketing, sales, customer service. What's interesting to me is if you set this up as kind of a team of rivals, 
and recognize that, yeah, there is a little bit of inherent friction here, but ultimately everybody brings a very significant contribution to making customer experience and customer experiences really good, then I think you've got something very powerful. So part of what we want to explore in that panel is understanding and recognizing that dichotomy and that dynamic, but also figuring out how to use that to best effect. Right, and, and people are working in multidisciplinary teams all the time. It's just, they also they often have conflicting goals, conflicting metrics, right? And it's gonna be a very interesting discussion yeah. with the folks that are on that panel. Oh, absolutely, uh, lots of practitioners, which is key. Yep, and you're also doing a fireside chat with uh, Jason Wild at Salesforce. I am, it's gonna be fun. You know, so he's, uh, his bag is innovation, which at a place like Salesforce is a pretty interesting subject because- order. Absolutely, it is a tall order, but it's something they think an awful lot about. So I think we're gonna have a pretty good in-depth discussion on that one. I don't wanna give too much away, but I think we're gonna have some interesting insights into <laughs> You know how how the leadership at Salesforce thinks, and maybe even what's on the burner, what we should look forward to in the future. Let's see. Right, and there's another one I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing about is really your small mini keynote, three to five CX <laughs> yeah. in an age of ambient immersion. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. We talk a lot about the fact that we live in an experience economy today, right? It doesn't really matter what you're selling. Uh, whether it's a tangible product or a service or anything else, for the most part, people are really buying the experience at least as much as they're buying the thing they actually spend money on, right? And in some cases, you know, if you are a resort or you're Disney, for example, you're actually selling the experience per se. It's not always quite that cut and dried for everybody else. But in that kind of scenario, there's an awful lot of stuff that happens in the background. And when it happens really effectively, you don't necessarily notice, but it all contributes to a, a greater whole, you know, that, that high level customer experience as opposed to just the sum of the individual customer experiences. So that's one of the really big questions. The other interesting aspect of that is, you know, not all experiences maybe should be in the background. So how do you figure out what the balance is? Um, we are also trying to fight for attention. And I think part of the challenge is how do you figure out exactly what kind of attention at what point you want from your customers? Wow. Yeah, this is a very fun conference. We are bringing together the notions of customer experience, immersive experiences, new technologies, AI all into one area. That's why we call it ambient experiences. This is going to be an annual event. Uh, in its first event, we've got 100 plus guests that will be there and uh, all here in Atlanta talking uh, about what's happening next. And the setting is actually fun. We're at the uh, Porsche Speedway. Uh, it's the Porsche Atlanta HQ. Uh, and they've got race uh, get tracks for doing some test drives. We've got like a bunch of test drives that are happening in the afternoon. And then, of course, um, some fun, interesting workshops. And then our AX50. And the interesting yes. things from AX50, this is our awards uh, really identifying the top uh, experience leaders out there. Oh, yeah. Fascinating stuff in the AX50. I mean, we've got a collection of folks in a variety of different roles from all different kinds of companies and sectors that are really trying to push the agenda forward and, and making a significant headway in doing so toward creating great customer experience. And, um, you know, one of the, the interesting challenges, just talking to one of the AX50 um, recipients recently is, you know, how do you do this effectively in a global 
competitive environment where you have all kinds of outside factors that may have a huge influence that you can neither predict very accurately nor control. So things like climate, you know, like big storms, volcanoes, um, health, public health, right? I mean, we already oh, see the World you Congress know. canceled this year because of the coronavirus. There, there are huge ripple effects here. Um, so imagine you're in the travel and hospitality business. That becomes a very interesting sort of business challenge to manage while you're also trying to maintain this customer relationship and uh, ensure that your customers ultimately are happy and come back to you, right? Well, we're here with Nicole France, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. You can follow her on Twitter at L-N-F-R-A-N-C-E. And of course, you can catch us next week on episode number 180. I can't believe it, 180. <laughs> I know. Our guests are Lauren Cooney, founder and CEO at Spark Lab, Pat Gurley, uh, Gurley CEO of Rootstock, a cloud ERP vendor, and one of our favorites, Terry Griffith, professor and author. She's now in Canada. We'll share with her what she is up to next. But please be here every Friday for the live show, um, three, uh, 11 p.m. 11 a.m. Sorry, Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern every Friday. And thank you for being on Disrupt TV. So. Thanks, Ray. It's been great co-hosting. I'm looking forward to having Vala back next time and uh, <laughs> seeing the great lineup. Thank you. Ask for Vala. Ask for Vala. Everyone knows. Everyone <laughs> Asking, knows for Vala. Asking for Vala. Asking for Vala. So that's the hashtag. So thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Nicole. Bye, everyone. Thanks.